Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, of course, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today's show is the last of the series. We take a break as Parliament goes back into recess. We're going to end on a good one, though, as we're joined by David Barclay, a partner of the Good Faith Partnership. David is a former president of the Oxford University Students' Union. He's been a community organiser and has worked with the Archbishop of Canterbury on a campaign against payday lenders. We'll talk about how much good work can be done without needing to be on the front line of party politics. But before that, as we say, this is the final show before September, by which time we will have a new prime minister. The summer will be full of debate from the Conservative Party leadership election. Very few of us have a vote, but these weeks are significant for us all as they will set a new direction for our government and indeed for our country. So today I want to consider how we can pray for the leadership of our country over the long summer weeks. Let's pray that our current leaders in number 10 and in cabinet positions continue to take their roles seriously. That those electing our next prime minister will choose wisely and then for good government from the new leadership. Why must we pray for good government? Well, in Romans 13 verse 1, Paul reminds us that the authorities that exist have been established by God. And in 1 Timothy 2 verse 2, he explicitly tells us to pray for kings and all those in authority. In a democracy, there are quite a lot of people in authority. So this can seem a massive task. In the UK, the prime minister is considered first among equals. We don't have a presidential system of government, yet the holder of that role has got huge power. The prime minister is our country's ultimate leader. The Bible is full of instructions and advice on good leadership. And Micah 6 verse 8 stands out as a template for prayer for such people. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Well, let's look at each part of this command in turn. First, act justly. Let's be blunt. Our politicians are often tempted to make decisions that benefit the powerful or the vocal, to act in ways that bring them personal advantage and to pursue ideological purity at a cost to people's welfare. In my personal opinion, we're seeing the latter as leadership candidates woo those with particular ideological views within their own party. So let us pray for integrity in government and for our leaders to act justly for the whole population, not just those they think might vote for them. Secondly, love mercy. Let's ask that our leaders remember that they are serving real people, many of whom are struggling to make ends meet. 
So let's pray for our new prime minister to consider the worth of every person and to be given wisdom to discern truth from untruth, to understand the issues and to weigh them up fairly with a heart of compassion. Let us also remember that our politicians are real people, not simply the caricatures that might appear through a media lens. So we need to show mercy when we think about them. They are making themselves vulnerable. So let us pray for their strength and resilience to be gracious under fire and not to base their own sense of worth on their media coverage or colleagues' words. Finally, walk humbly. Let's pray that power does not inflate the egos of those in the spotlight. Pray that they would be able to admit fallibility and to see issues and people as God sees them, in which case no person's troubles will be trivial to them. Pray for them to keep in mind their passion for meeting people's needs through politics, whilst remembering that no system is greater than those it serves. I had the privilege on Sunday of delivering the sermon at St Paul's Church in Grange over Sands in my constituency. The awesome responsibility of preaching from God's word is rightly far more daunting than any speech I've ever given in the House of Commons. I spoke on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 13. The last sentence of that parable feels especially relevant. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, God's view of good leadership is at odds to that of the world. All I can do is pray, we might say. All? As if prayer is a low-grade last resort. Well, let's remember who we're praying to. We cannot solve all the world's problems, but prayer is our opportunity to go directly to the creator of the universe, the one who holds all things in his hands, who breathed into existence every one of those exotic, unimaginably vast and distant objects of beauty glimpsed by the new James Webb telescope, and yet who is intimately concerned about every aspect of our lives. Hebrews 4 verse 16 tells us that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence, and Philippians 4 verse 6 exhorts us to present our requests to God in every situation. So please pray for our leaders and our government during the next few weeks, and for those members of the Conservative Party who will choose between the final two candidates. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to our guest, David Barclay, a partner of the Good Faith Partnership. David, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with an easy setup. Tell us a little bit about uh, your organisation um, so we can get to know you a little bit. And then also tell us a little bit about your faith journey. Sure. So um, the Good Faith Partnership, we are a social consultancy and our mission really is to bring collaborative solutions to life, to big uh, problems. And so we, in order to do that, we work at the intersection of politics and faith and business and charity on a variety of different topics. Um, so one of the topics we've done lots of work on is uh, refugee resettlement and support, where we've been working with the government, with the Home Office, but also with faith leaders, with civil society leaders, to help design new policies and new initiatives around community-led refugee resettlement. So that could have been the community sponsorship program, but now obviously with the Homes for Ukraine scheme, we are helping churches and other civil society groups to become welcome hubs, to welcome uh, Ukrainian refugees into their local community. In terms of uh, me and my journey, um, I, I always say the easiest way to understand uh, kind of what motivates me is, is to look at my surname, Barclay, um, I've got some very interesting 
ancestors, as the name suggests, some of whom were involved in banking, um, but lots of whom were involved in uh, politics, broadly defined. Um, they were Quakers, um, and so they, had, they were inspired by their faith to make a big difference in the world. Um, and so one of my ancestors, my great, 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 great grandfather um, was actually an MP. He was friends with William Wilberforce and part of the, um, the kind of abolition uh, movement in the UK at that time. And um, he's always been quite an inspirational figure to me. There's been a real sense of a kind of legacy through the family. Um, my grandfather wrote a book about this ancestor and my dad is a theologian. And so, the, you know, these the kind of stories get passed down the generations. And so I, I was brought up in a very, uh, I would say, a very kind of vibrant, a living Christian tradition um, that was um, about how do you make the world a better place? How do we use the gifts that we've been given, the resources that we've got to try and make a positive difference? And so for me, um, in a sense, faith and politics have always been kind of intertwined, part of the same conversation, really, about how can we make, make change happen. And so one of your earliest roles, you ended up becoming the president of Oxford University Students' Union. Um, how was student politics for you? Ha, student politics, well at the time it was um, when the fees system was changing and £9,000 fees were um, coming in, so it was quite a momentous year um, when I was in charge. You might remember students kind of occupying buildings and smashing up Millbank and all kinds of, uh, all kinds of things. And it was, it was a fascinating time to be involved because although it didn't actually transpire in quite this way, the language that the government were using at the time was all about creating a market in higher education and bringing that kind of way of thinking about students as consumers purchasing a product, having a market uh, into the kind of education space. And, and that you know, forced a really interesting and important conversation about actually what is the point of all of this? What is the point of education? Is it just a product that we buy, like we buy things from a supermarket or is there something more? Um, going on there, something different going on there. So I, I really loved it. Obviously, Oxford University, um, you know, meant was quite um, high profile um, in terms of some of those debates. And we actually became the first uh, ever UK university to pass a motion of no confidence in the government's higher education minister, uh, who's David Willits at the time. So it was um, it was a very interesting uh, time and process to be part of. Now, wonderful. Now, you didn't like um, some people who were president of the Oxford University Students' Union, go into active party politics straight afterwards. You followed another rather famous politician, Barack Obama, in being a community organiser. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I, I guess I looked at that path um, of going from the student union into Westminster. You know, you'd work for an MP and then you'd maybe do some stuff with think tanks and then you'd try and, you know, find yourself a, a you know, you'd fight an election, you'd try and find a safe seat, all that stuff. And I thought, I'm not sure that I would end up out the other side of that process, a particularly transformative uh, kind of person or presence in the world. Mm. And that was partly a reflection, a recognition of, of my own privilege in terms of my backgrounds that I'd um, been brought up in a fairly comfortable um, community and then going to Oxford, it just it felt like on, on to another bubble was not really the right move for me. Mm. Um, and as you said, I've been really inspired at that, at that point in my life by Barack Obama and by his story. And I'd come across community organizing in East London, uh, particularly through the living wage campaign. Um, and I'd heard some of the stories of churches and others um, uh, fighting for a living wage uh, in that part of the world. 
and that had really inspired me I thought that's the kind of politics that I can really get behind and um, and so I did a summer internship when I was a student spent some time with the Salvation Army in Stepney Green on the Ocean Council Estate um, and I just fell in love with it as a as a way of doing politics it really opened my eyes to the possibility that I might not have all the answers I came into that thinking you know I can come in and help communities or help people and actually what I found was that's not really my role uh, my role there's, there's already plenty of people in those communities that want to help themselves that want to help their community that have everything they need to do it except for that coordination that ability to try and bring things together and that's the kind of role that I fell in love with really was that actually I could use my skills and my energy to bring people together around a kind of common cause but I didn't have to be at the front you know um, getting all the glory for that and being the kind of spokesperson for it I could just be in the background helping to make things happen helping create the conditions for a change because that's quite a set of skills there I think you're dealing with people who uh, put bluntly you can't sack you can't promote you can't offer them a pay rise you have to manage people drive yeah. them uh, organize them to a, a shared set of objectives um, through what means what how, how do you motivate people yeah through through relationships ultimately um through getting to know people there's a, there's a, a brilliant set of tools within community organizing um that can be kind of studied and learned by by anyone and um one of them that i've always found the most important is this idea of of self-interest and self-interest not in a kind of very narrowly defined way as a kind of selfishness but in a broad definition of what motivates people to act um, and if you're curious about that, um, you can unlock all kinds of possibilities, I've discovered. that So often in life, we kind of go through making assumptions about what actually kind of makes people tick and what they really care about without really ever questioning that. And so through one-to-one -one conversations and relationship building in community organizing, we can try and understand people's self-interest, what motivates them, could be a whole range of factors. And then what you do is you look for where is the shared self-interest, where is the mutual self-interest in a community. And that might be, um, you know, that there's a, some people in a church where maybe one or two people have had experiences of a payday lender or, um, you know, uh, uh, getting into debt. But they might be nearby to a mosque where people might not have got into debt themselves, but they might be unhappy about the fact that there's now five payday lenders on their high street. And that, that was the issue, money and debt, that I ended up working on in, in East London. And that was the situation at that time, very diverse area. You could easily imagine that those institutions had nothing in common. Mm. But when you drilled down a little bit and you understood, and actually what was interesting is both of their faith traditions, Christianity and Islam, had some really quite important, meaningful stuff to say about how we should and shouldn't use money and how we should and shouldn't lend money to each other. And so they had lots that they could work together on. Um, but you had to get under the surface a little bit and understand people's um, self-interest. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're speaking to David Barclay, a partner of the Good Faith Partnership. David, tell us a little bit about your work at the Good Faith Partnership. What does it involve? Give us a, an overview of what you do there. Well, so we work on a project basis, which means there's always lots of different things happening at any one time. Um, so probably the easiest way to give you a flavour of the work is just to describe a couple of the projects that we're mm. working on. So one of the big ones we're working on at the moment is called the Church Works Commission. And it comes out of some work that we did over uh, the COVID pandemic when we created something called the Your Neighbour platform to support churches to respond to the pandemic in their community. 
And out of that, we discovered that we had a, quite a unique ability and opportunity to bring together national church leaders from different denominations to talk to government about what was going on and where were the big opportunities for collaboration. And so last year, we turned that into a formal commission structure where we invited all of the different denominations to nominate two commissioners and to become part of this uh, commission, chaired by the Bishop of Durham. Um, and it, it was about finding where are those big COVID recovery priorities for the church and how do they align to the priorities of the government at a national level? And how do we find the points of connection between those where actually churches could work really effectively in partnership with government in different ways? So we've been looking at things like family hubs, which the government are investing lots of money in and helping local government to set up these family hub networks to provide support for vulnerable families and communities. That's something that churches are already doing up and down the country. So how do we help them to knit that together into these new structures that are being built at that kind of local level? Or mental health and well-being, a huge priority for the NHS, for the Department of Health and Social Care. They're developing a 10-year strategy on um, supporting people's mental health. How can churches be involved in that? How could denominations of different kinds of backgrounds um, get involved in that? So that's a big uh, project that we've got on the go at the moment. Um, and then we've got another project um, I, I mentioned earlier about um, the Ukrainian refugee uh, mm. crisis, where we've developed a model in Bristol, where I'm based, which is called Welcome Hubs, where we've got churches and other community groups that are organising themselves as welcome hubs for Ukrainian refugees, providing friendship, providing support, providing a space for them to meet each other uh, and to, to integrate into life in the UK. And that's done very closely in partnership with the local council. Um, so local council will refer people when they arrive to their nearest welcome hub and they'll give a little bit of funding to the churches or whoever is running the welcome hub. And it's a great way for them as government to understand actually what is the experience of people like when they arrive, what are the challenges they're facing and how can you get the best blend of professional support, for example, helping them access the benefit system or find work or whatever it might be with the kind of support that really volunteers and, and friends are best placed to um, to provide. So we've been we've got 15 hubs up and running in Bristol already and we're now looking to work in partnership with others to expand that model um, to other places. So that's that's a little bit of uh, yeah. some of the work that we're up to. Wow I mean it's interesting to contrast what you're doing now uh, in a whole range of different spheres and different projects with uh, what most people will think of as as politics yeah and you know, we're in the middle of a concerted leadership contest and we're five down to four as we speak it'll be possibly even less by the time some people listen to this this podcast I guess for lots of people who are interested in politics and Christians tuning into this program who know politics is important want to know how they can play their part there may be an assumption that you've got to stick a rosette on um, stand behind the lectern and jab your finger at somebody else and to make your your case and all of that and of course that is I guess one side or one face of politics but here you've made a choice, David, and others with you to try to change people's lives in quite a different way. And for many people listening to this program, that will feel quite unusual, but also very attractive. So maybe talk to us a little bit about how people who listen to this program might see advocacy, community organising as a way of making a difference, perhaps even more than frontline politics, so to speak. 
Yeah, well, I've, I've always felt um, when you look at some of the big, you know, the big issues that we're facing at a local level, at a national level, at an international level, um, they're too big and they're too complex for the answers to come from any one single place. They're too big for our politics to deal with on its own. They're too big for just the businesses and the private sector to deal with on their own. They're too big just for the church and for the faith communities to deal with on their own. And for me, the most encouraging and the most inspiring solutions are usually to be found at the intersection of those different places where you've got different kinds of organizations coming together and bringing different kinds of resources um, to the table. And so for me, I've always been interested in politics. I think it's really important. I think what the government does or what it doesn't do uh, is really fundamentally important and says something about who we are as, as a community. Um, but I think you can get involved in politics with a small p as it were in lots of different ways and you can engage with politicians and with government at different levels from all kinds of different spaces so you can obviously engage as an individual citizen but you can also engage as a church you can have a conversation with a councillor with a local government representative and just ask them what are the challenges that they're um, facing at the moment what are the opportunities that they see how are they already working with faith communities almost every local authority in the country through the pandemic has had to reach out to faith communities and other civil society groups just to make sure that people are getting food, getting medicine um, are, are okay. And so lots of them are thinking now, okay, well, actually we've had a really great experience of that. Uh, and, and we found that there's a real resource and a real set of connections out there in communities already. How can we work more effectively with that when it comes to supporting families or the cost of living crisis? would be a great example. There's lots of local governments thinking about setting up warm spaces in communities for people this winter who might not be able to heat their own homes. That's, that's an incredibly sad situation mm. to be in. It's a big yeah. problem, but it's also an opportunity for churches, for individuals, for commu local communities um, to make a difference um, and to build those relationships. Uh, ultimately, I really believe that all positive change comes through relationships. Um, and that, you know, that's a, a message and that's a lesson that you can that you can find within the Christian tradition, within other faith traditions as well, the fundamental importance of relationships. And um, and so if you build those kind of relationships with a sense of purpose, a sense of curiosity um, about what could change, what could be done together, then I think you'll find that there's all kinds of ways that you can be political without having to be party political. I think that's really welcome rebuke to those people who are in frontline politics, because let's be honest, we can do many of those things whilst also serving in elected office. But it's also mm. great encouragement to the many people listening who want to know how can they make a difference um, in the mucky business of politics. And here's a way of literally getting your hands dirty in the community where you have been placed, working with others, building relationships and able to deliver change and uh, and better outcomes for people as a consequence of that action. So, David, you're a great example to us. Um, and we're really grateful to you and for the work of Good Faith Partnership as a whole and all the projects that come from that. So, David, it's been an absolute blessing talking to you. All the best. Great pleasure. Thanks, Tim. Each week, we give you the opportunity to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us as Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling with to make sense of, 
I'd love to hear from you and attempt to answer. So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Now this week, John in South Wales has been in touch with a topical question and he asks, we've seen some interesting TV debates in recent days between those wanting to become the next prime minister. Are TV debates the best way to appoint a leader? Oh, John, great question. I think, first of all, as we speak, I think some of those candidates have decided that they don't want to continue doing the TV debates. I understand that the Sky debate in the early part of this week, I think even tonight, uh, has now been cancelled because at least two of the Conservative candidates for leadership have decided they don't want to do it. And I suspect they don't want to do it because there's a belief that um, candidates for the leadership of the Conservative Party all knocking spots off each other on primetime television isn't particularly good for the Conservative Party. And of course, at the moment, who's the audience? Well, it's about 360 Conservative MPs. After this week, it'll end up being about 160,000 Conservative members, which of course leaves tens of millions of us without a vote. But I would say that whilst TV debates can, I guess, move people to shallowness, to wanting to get across a, a quick rebuttal and a quick line, a quick soundbite, it's still better than there being no coverage at all. And I guess the value of a TV debate, uh, well-chaired, like I think the Channel 4 and the ITV debates have been, is that candidates get seen by the potential electorate, by the people they might end up serving as prime minister, um, and they get seen, but not entirely on their own terms. It's not just a, a speech where they just say what they like or a video that their team has put together for them. It's a situation where they get challenged by other candidates, challenged by an independent chair, and be made slightly uncomfortable and have to tell you about themselves, but not on their own terms. So I think it's better than there not being debates, but I also think certainly Christians involved in, in politics, if you're involved in one of those TV debates, having been involved in several of them myself when I was a party leader, it's all the more important that you act as a witness and you treat one another with real grace, with mercy and with kindness. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's finish by praying together the prayer that is said in the House of Commons at the start of each day's business. Lord, the God of righteousness and truth, grant to our Queen and her government, to members of Parliament and all in positions of responsibility, the guidance of your spirit. May they never lead the nation wrongly through love of power, desire to please or unworthy ideals, but laying aside all private interests and prejudices, keep in mind their responsibility to seek to improve the condition of all mankind. So may your kingdom come and your name be hallowed. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, government ministers and former ministers, MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. This is the last episode of this series, but we'll be back in the autumn with some great guests and look out for news about our special live recordings where you can come and join in in person. Have a wonderful summer. Mm -hmm.